This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Melanie Saywood, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, this is, I'm really looking forward to this chat and I just love your energy. A oh, brief podcast chat gave me, <laughs> it made me very excited. Melanie is a proud descendant. Now I'm going to give this a, a go of uh, the, all right, you say it first. Big and bull. Big and bull people. And Waka Waka. Yep. And Waka Waka peoples. Yep. Where are those people based? Bigamble's around the um, Gundawindi area, so it's on the Queensland, New South Wales border, west um, of west of Brisbane, I suppose. And yeah. um, Waka Waka, my nana was from Gainda. Um, she's a law from Gainda. Um, and my great-grandparents met on the Baramba mission in Sherberg. So um, that's how we sort of came to came be to the be. two mobs. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I love it. And she's based in Ipswich, an associate lecturer in creative writing out of QUT and a PhD student. So obviously you don't sleep much. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Melanie's writing has been published in Flock, First Nations Stories, Kill Your Darlings, Overland, Scum Mag, and Verity, is it Verity La? Mm-hmm. She has been shortlisted for the Karaka Prize and the David Unipen Award and received highly recommended mentions in the Boundless Indigenous Mentorship, the Harlequin First Nations Fellowship. I didn't even know there was a Harlequin First Nations Fellowship and the Calibre Essay Prize. This is her first novel, Burn. It's an affecting, powerful novel about prejudice and growing up on the margins of society. And you do need a box of tissues. Oh. I know. I know. Because <laughs> life is hard. Yeah. Life is yeah. hard. Yeah. It is. Talk to me about where that story came from. Well, firstly, tell us a little bit about the novel and why Why now write a novel. Yeah, sure. So, so Burn opens after a a tragic bushfire. Um, a child's in a coma when the book opens up, and uh, a school, the whole school's come under uh, under suspicion for it. But um, Andrew, who's a seventeen year old um, young black fella, he's sitting there, but he's not quite worried about getting caught, even though he thinks that he has set the fire. He believes that he set the fire, um, and actually, he kind of wants to get caught because uh, the last time he lit a big fire his dad came back to him so Andrew's a kid who is looking for attention basically he's lighting fires looking for attention and trying to find his way with his family that's kind of falling apart his mum's got 
quite serious depression and she's quite neglectful as well. Um, and his dad is really struggling to hold down work. It's sort of the economy where a black fella is the first person to go. It's a big thing that was um, pretty prevalent in Tassie in the time when I was writing this book, that your factory workers were the ones that were the first ones to go. And so it's sort of a book about that looks at the intergenerational trauma effects in different generations and, and asks why good kids do terrible things, which Andrew has done some really terrible things. Do you know, growing <clears throat> up, right, and this is really naive, but I'm going to admit to it, and lucky when I got to this age, I realised that this theory doesn't really work. Because I was an immigrant to this country, my parents are Lebanese, mm-hmm. they worked very hard to give their children a new life and to give their children a better life. And I always thought, oh, well, that's what, now it, they didn't have an easy life. Don't get me wrong. They fled war in Lebanon. Mm. But I always thought, oh, okay, well, that's the point, that the next generation will always have a better life, mm. right? But that's not how it works, is it? And I've, I thought it did for a while, but it really depends on your starting point. Yeah, it really does. And, you know, it's not, I think that's the hope, right? You know, like yeah. I definitely know that my parents and grandparents mm. had hoped that our lives would be better. And I, I don't have kids myself, but I've got a little niece and nephew and my joy is imagining them having a much better life than what I've had. And I think I've had a great life, but yeah, you're, you're exactly right. It, it's not always the way it might be the hope, but when, when we have this like far reaching effective intergenerational trauma, it's not mm. always possible, you know, and it's not always, that's not necessarily your path. No, there are so many obstacles. There are so yeah. many obstacles for Andrew that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. And I think we talk about that a lot when, you know, closing the gap and breaking the cycle. And that's, you know, that's kind of, you know, you asked before, why write a book um, like this now? And and I think it's because it's topical because it's something that we're talking about a lot. You know, I, Mm. I cringe, but in my neighborhood Facebook groups, you know, you quite often see people saying, oh, lock these kids up, these bad Mm. kids, what are their parents doing? And, you know, I come from Queensland where, you know, I think it's just today that some human rights uh, recommendations have been overturned for putting kids in prison. Um, we have some of the toughest laws on on kids and juvenile justice in Queensland and, you know. But also it, deaths in custody. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. and we think about that, you know, and people are saying, lock them up and get, you know, stop, stop the cycle. That's not actually how we stop the cycle. That's how we continue the cycle. So that's why I wanted to write a book like this. I wanted to show why things might happen, but also I think that it shows um, how we can break the cycle and mm. and mm. and close the gap and all of mm. those buzzwords that politicians like to use when they're mm. talking about mobs. You know, I read, oh, was it today or yesterday, that Stan Grant resigned from the ABC. Mm-hmm. That should be an embarrassment to the country. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Like mm. what, we are in 2023. Mm. Mm. Anyway, it gives me goosebumps even thinking about that. Mm. All right, I want to know more about you. 
<laughs> and I want to know how you came to writing, but I want you to go way back. Tell me where you grew up. Were you a reader? Did you dream of being a writer? Oh, I love being asked this because <laughs> I love talking about that. Um, so I grew up in Luchawita in Tasmania. First, I was sort of in a similar area to where Andrew is in the book. Um, I was in Burnie is where I was born. Uh, I grew up sort of um, in Launceston, actually, we moved to Launceston. I was a bit older, um, so you know, I very. Why did cl- you go all the way from Queensland to Launceston? Oh, we went the other way round. Oh, you went the other way to around. Queensland. Yeah, right, okay. yeah. So Andrew I, dragged I that one, <laughs> kicking and screaming from Launceston to Brisbane. That was me. Yeah, um, yeah. I I didn't want to move. Um, so How we old had, were you? I was fourteen or fifteen. Oh, so yeah. I was quite a Formative. difficult. Yeah, it was my difficult time. Right. Um, I was in grade nine, and I, you know, if anyone from Tassie is listening, they will know that grade nine is your second last year of high school as opposed to on the mainland where you know you go maybe go through the same school in Tassie after grade 10 you go to college or matric for two years for 11 and 12 and so I missed I left the year before I got to be a prefect or have a leavers dinner and all of those (laughs) things that you look forward to and then I moved to a school where I was back in the junior school for grade 10 rather than the senior school um so you know those sorts of things are really really difficult for me yeah so I didn't I didn't want to leave Tassie I'm glad that we did but I didn't want to leave at the time yeah and I was a reader um my my nana uh she read to me all the time as a little girl Um, and she also used to make up stories which I think is where I got my imagination from or maybe my my the permission to um, imagine she used to have a little scrapbook and um, she'd buy greeting cards from the news agents that had like a little girl and a dog and she'd glue the picture onto one side and then on the other side she'd write a story and it was always about Melanie and her dog that she had and the adventures they went on. And her name was Lucy and there was a kid's book about Grandmother Lucy and even though the little girl in the book, the granddaughter, wasn't named, it was always Melanie in the book. Um, and so those those sorts of things she would, you know, embellish written stories so that it was her and I going on great adventures and she was my absolute favourite person in the world and I think, yeah, she gave me that love of reading. But so did my mum and my other nana, like I come from a family where there was always a book in somebody's hand. So having books around was really important. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but Nan would buy the golden books from the supermarket for me. She liked Aren't to they great? Yeah, and and um, I'd always spend my pocket money when I got a bit older on Babysitter's Club books because they were about $5. Yeah. So I'd have a Babysitter's Club every couple of weeks. So <laughs> And I was such a voracious reader that in primary school I used to get into trouble for um, not being able to put down my book. I've got a school report that says Melanie would be a great all-round student if she'd put her books down. Yeah. Um, I used to read under the lid of my desk yes. in, in maths class because I hated maths and I loved reading. Okay, so then you, you're up in Queensland and you go to high school You go to, mm-hmm. and then what do you do after that? I didn't do much of anything actually after high school. <laughs> I worked yeah. in hospitality. I thought I wanted to work in 
in the medical um, industry, I wanted to be an ambulance officer actually. So I, when I didn't get into nursing at uni, I kind of just took some time off and worked for a while and I worked my way into a marketing position. So I worked in medical marketing. I worked for a pathology company writing all of their leaflets and copy. And I spent all of my free time and some of my not free time, sorry, to my workplace um, on the internet writing fan fiction. Oh, right. Um, and I decided that I loved writing and, I mean, I'd always loved writing, but I was like, why didn't I decide to do something with this? You know, all my consistently good grades were in English and writing yeah. and all of those sorts of things. And, yeah, that's what I decided I'd go back to uni and um, do a creative writing degree. So that was, I think I was in my mid-20s when I started my creative writing degree and it's kind of where I felt like coming home. It was what I was meant to do. So talk to me about, you think you're a writer now, were there anybody, anyone you were reading at the time that made you think that's where I want to be? That's the way I want to write? They're the stories I want to tell? It was when I got into uni, I think, that I I really started to think that because I, it, I actually think it's a full, little bit of a full circle journey because when I was working full time, I used to walk past the Mary Ryan's bookshop in Milton every day and I'd buy tons and tons of books, but I'd always buy the remainder ones that were on special because um, I didn't have very much money. <laughs> yeah. um, and I'd just buy anything, you know, like I've always been that sort of person where it's like, oh, just give me a book and I'll I'll have a look at it and I'll work yeah. out what I like. And I used to really enjoy like Nick Earle's books because they said in Brisbane and I was sort of living a life in that inner city Brisbane sort of areas to you yeah and that spoke to me you know like quite realist um fiction not funny he was funny and I didn't think I was a funny writer and also a lot of women's fiction like I was reading a lot of chick lit I loved Bridget Jones's diary um Marion Keys I would absolutely devour every single one of those I just loved a story about you know also Anita Heiss as well I would love to story about a young woman having a life and a career and that sort of thing and and that was that was sort of what I was reading at the time but when I started to go to uni I went a lot deeper and that's when I started picking up like Melissa Lukashenko's earlier work like um Mullumbimby but also further back like Hard Yards and Steam Pigs and some of those earlier books Tony Birch and picking up those sorts of things was really important important for me and sort of shaped like oh you know I can write about being a black fellow I can write our stories I can look at the I think with them the the breadth of the Indigenous experience was really important Mm -hmm. to me you know that it was more than just those stereotypical um that's exactly what I was gonna say and not necessarily issues based you know no just telling the story of family and life yeah yeah having a family and a life and yeah Yeah. and Tony Tony like you know Secret River about young boys that are on the margins kind of thing I Mm. loved that and the way they befriended the old fellas who live down by the river, you know, like also humanising mm. unhoused folks that were camping rough and sleeping rough and and thinking, oh, yeah, they're our elders actually a lot of the time that are sleeping rough and, and doing it tough and all of those sorts of things. So, yeah, it was reading those things. It just took me a really long time to nail a voice, you know. Mm. <laughs> because you kind of start from scratch, don't you? 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So creative writing, you when do you write your first piece where you think this is publishable? Like when is it that you decided <laughs> that I'm going to enter a competition or I'm going to show it to someone? I think there's something in that. Because I, I mean, I'm not a writer and I've t- spoken to so many writers and I, I always think that must be the moment you know, you know, when you know you know. I don't know if you ever know, Cheryl. Like sometimes don't you I think don't, you ever I, know? No, I don't. I don't know because so I I really took it to heart. One of my creative writing tutors was a woman. She's actually passed away. She was a um, oh. nonfiction tutor, and she was my first favorite tutor. And her name was Shirley. And Shirley said to me in one of our tutorials oh, you don't have to wait until you graduate to uh, behave like a writer. You're not oh, I studying. Like that. Yeah, I and like you're not that. studying to be a teacher. Like my, my sister and I actually, because of the way we did things, ended up at uni at the same time and my sister was studying to be a teacher and she's now a fabulous teacher. Um, so we're at uni at the same time and so Shirley said to me, you're not like your sister, right? You, She needs to basically walk across the stage and get that diploma and or pass all of those things to go out and get her job and work as a teacher. You don't need to do that. You are a writer when you start to think of yourself as a writer. And that was in my second semester, first year. Do you know, can you just stop right there? Because I yeah. think that's a moment to remember. You I know, do, yeah. yeah. Yeah, don't you think? Yeah. Do you know, I have recorded, Melanie, I've recorded, I don't know, I've spoken to over 500 authors <laughs> and I hear something new almost every time. Yeah. And that is something new and I love it. Can you tell yeah. us again? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, here's the thing is that I take that. Those words, you don't have to walk across the stage. You do not need a degree to become a writer. You're a writer when you think you are. And I've taken those words and I tell every cohort of students that comes through um, my, my, um, any of my courses, you, you don't have, you, you don't need anyone's permission, but your own to consider yourself a writer. And what is a writer, you know, does, do, do you consider a writer someone who's holding up their book or are you a writer while you're writing, you know, and, and a, what does a writer do? A writer writes. Yeah. So those, those were the, that was formidable for me. Um, and, Fantastic. and it was for many people in my cohort who we formed a little writing group and for the 
three years of our degree, we would go have a coffee once a week in the Three Monkeys Cafe, which anyone who's from Brisbane will remember. Sadly, it's gone now. Um, and we'd sit in a back room in the Three Monkeys Cafe for hours and hours and hours on one cup of coffee, basically. And we'd critique each other's work and we'd go through QWC, the Writers' Centre in Queensland, had a magazine and it had opportunities in it and we'd go through all the opportunities and we'd go, which piece have we got to send that to? So I I never got published in my undergrad degree um, except for in the student magazine at the end of the year, but I was submitting actively from first year because, you know, the other thing that I was told was that you have to start collecting your rejections early and get used to it. So that's what I did. And it's practice, right? Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. And every time, and sometimes you can go, I know exactly what mistake I made when I sent that one off or other times you go, I have no idea why that didn't get through. And and I think that's the writing life. You know, I'm a fair bit further down the track now and I still think sometimes, yeah, I know why that piece didn't get through. And then there's other times where I go, why didn't they take that? <laughs> but also it's kind of the moment, the time, what's happening in the world, what the recipient, the reader is thinking, mm-hmm. you know, what the judges are thinking, mm-hmm. you know, how people are feeling on the day. I mean, yes. I see that a lot, like, you mm. know, matching manuscripts with publishers even. Yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. And I think, you know, when I look at Burn, I've been going around the submission grind with that for a long, a long, long time. And the first place that took it to acquisitions was like eight years ago, nine years ago. Oh, wow. Talk and to me about that journey. Yeah. So it was uh, it was a big publisher. They took it. Um, I was working there at the time and I'd gotten a kernel of interest from another one of the big publishers and I told the publisher that I was assisting at the time that um, – Oh, I think I've I've done something. Um, this other publishers asked to see my manuscript, and they were like, "Right, give it to us." So it did. It went to acquisitions at both um, of both of those publishers, and it um, got passed on from both of them as well, but with good feedback. But it was devastating at the time, like utterly devastating. I cried and cried and cried and cried. But I do remember ringing my mum and saying to her, once I'd calmed down a bit, I went. The thing that I'm taking away from this, mum, is that it's not if I get published anymore, it's when I get published. And I've held on to that for, you know, maybe eight years, I guess, until it landed with the team at a firm with Kelly and Armel um, because the day that I met them and we talked about my book, I knew it was at the right place. They understood it. They didn't have questions about why did Andrew's dad lose his job all the time? They didn't have these strange questions that tell me that they didn't really get my book. Actually, they got this book so much. Seriously, and did somebody it, say why? And oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, yeah, why, really? why? Why would Andrew's dad? What and why are they so poor? And I was like, <gasps> yeah. So and also, like, I was really proud of the book at that time. But when I hold burn in my hands now, I keep looking in this direction because it's sitting on the desk over there. Yeah. Um, when I hold it in my hands now. I think about what was in the story and then how much editing and work I've done on it and actually the impact that Kelly and Martin and Amel at a firm had on um, where the story went. We didn't change it very much when um, we got into editorial, but I did change the ending and I love that ending now. I am 
so proud of this book and what it says. And I don't know what this book would have been if it had come out 10 years ago. I don't think it would have been the right book. So, you know, you and do maybe have it wasn't to trust right that time. even if it is a hard slog, yeah, yeah, it wasn't the right time. It was a hard slog with the right publisher, the right time, the right people. And and this book is just, you know, it's my baby now, you know. <laughs> How did you find a firm? How did I find them? Um, I got picked up off the slush pile. Oh. <gasps> You're kidding. No. <laughs> How no. rare is that? Yeah, it really, really is. It really Talk is. to me about that. It's my favourite story, Cheryl. Um, I So, yeah, I've been going around the grind for about 10 years. I had a long conversation with Alex Adset, who is now my agent, but she was a mate of mine before she was my agent. And I got shortlisted. It's been shortlisted for the Aniapen twice. It had a different name the first time it was shortlisted, but it was burned the last time and it was close to what it is now. And I just got really frustrated at the end of the process where I was having a chat with Alex. I was almost done with my PhD or sort of midway through my PhD. And I got on a Zoom call with her just to have a vent to say, Alex, what's going on? Why will no one publish this novel? And if I keep editing it, I'm afraid that I'm going to change what's good about it and then I'm going to muck it up and that's the end of it. And so she talked me off the ledge, but her talking me off the ledge was go concentrate on your PhD because she was secretly more interested in my PhD book than Burn at the time. Um, uh, go go work on your PhD. We'll talk and maybe we'll take Burn out as your second book after your PhD is done. And so that was what I was going to do, put it in the drawer. Um, I went to visit my parents for a couple of days and was relaxed and happy. They live up by the beach and I was just having a really nice time. And I got on my Instagram and saw a firm had put their Monday submission call out up. And I thought, well, if I submit it and it's sitting on the slush pile, it's still kind of in a drawer, right? So Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so I put the application together and I made a silly video on my TikTok about how I wasn't going to do it and then I did it and I thought that was as far as it would go. Um, I heard back from Armel a couple of months later just asking for the rest of it, which was exciting, but I didn't let myself get too excited because I'd been this far before. And then after Christmas they got back to me and uh, said, oh, look, Mel, we love the book here's some feedback. And it was, it was funny because the feedback was in that time that they'd taken to read it. I'd started to have really serious thoughts about the ending of the book, which I'm not going to talk too much about because I'll spoil it, but the ending and, and where the hope was in the story for Andrew. And so I'd been sort of having these really serious thoughts about it. And the questions that Armel was asking me in this email were, basically the same thoughts that I was having. And I thought, oh, what a gift this is. You know, they haven't commissioned this book, but what they've actually done is what I've been asking for for 10 years has given me some solid feedback. I know exactly what I've got to do to fix this book now. So I just wrote her a thank you. Thank you for this feedback. You don't know what it means to me. This is exactly what I'm thinking. I can't wait to get rewriting. Anyway, two days later, I get an email going, can you Zoom with me and Kelly Doust, who is now my publisher? And I thought, oh, yeah, they're just going to give me some feedback and tell me to submit it to them again when it's done. And I got on the Zoom and they were there and they're like, don't start talking yet, just wait a second. Martin Hughes is coming, who is, you know, the the, (laughs) um, big we get a firm. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, 
They don't get the managing director of the company on the Zoom call to give you feedback. I think they're going to make an offer. And yeah, that's what happened. So like I kind of went from thinking I was getting a feedback call. I like rocked up. I felt felt like, I, you know, I was on this Zoom call looking a mess and whatever else. And then they <laughs> made an offer. Up for the managing oh my God. director. Oh my, God. oh, my God. Oh, my God. They made an offer. And then I got off the phone, shut my laptop and like rolled around the floor <laughs> and screamed for a little while. Um, yeah. So it was amazing. Like it's my, it is my favorite story because after all that grind that I went through, it got picked up off a slush pile it didn't win a prize got shortlisted for prizes but um yeah and what did your agent say oh she was so happy for me yeah yeah Yeah, she was really really happy for me so your phd you're writing another book it's another fiction work yes oh wow yeah exciting romantic comedy so completely different genre Love (laughs) love it love it tell me why you're at Varuna why we're zooming and you're in a studio at Varuna Varuna is the most beautiful mm. riding house. Um, it's a house in the Blue Mountains um, in Katoomba um, and it was owned by Eleanor Dark, the writer, and her and her husband, um, Dr Dark, they uh, gave their house to the Riders of Australia and so it's become a riding retreat, which is kind of the pinnacle of like riding retreats in this country. I think it's it really one of the, is. you know, ones that we talk about a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was very fortunate to come up here for the first time last year to do a masterclass with Tony Birch and some other absolutely incredible Indigenous writers and um, I formed a quite a lovely relationship with the staff up here and and so now I'm here this week assessing residential fellowship applications. So um, helping, working with a team of other writers and the team from Verena to um, go through manuscripts and decide who gets some residential fellowships in 2024, which is lovely. Mm. It's not just a place to write, is it? There's, you know, it, it, there's organised activities as well. There can be, yeah. It depends yeah. on what you come up here for. Like I I came up earlier in the year this year and it was just a space to write. So yeah. you get um, everyone has a place to sleep and you're in little writing studio area. Some of them like uh, where I am at the moment, the studio is self-contained, so the bedroom and there's a little kitchenette and things and I've got my own bathroom and things. But um, most of the other writers live in the house together, so you have a bedroom um, that also has a little writing studio and shared bathroom and everything. And we share a kitchen and we share meals together and conversation in the evening, which is really lovely. Um, yeah, you can come up here sometimes where there's some organized activities. So the first time I came was for a masterclass. It was uh, writing on country masterclass. So um, it was all Indigenous writers. So we, you know, had a yarn with some of the local elders, which was lovely. And then mm-hmm. we took class with Tony Birch, which was, oh, my God, like a dream come true, a full circle moment from the little uni student reading his books to sitting in the classroom with him, which was amazing. So, yeah, there, there, there are ones where there'll be activities and some scheduled things, but most of the time you're just left alone to write, which is lovely. And, you know, it's in a beautiful setting. So when you have those moments where you can't uh, can't muster the words, you put your shoes on and go for a walk down to the Three Sisters or into lovely mm. Katoomba Town and have a coffee. And, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful setting. And even though I'm here to work for Verena this week. I still have done a little bit of my own work because 
you know, I'm not scheduled 15 hours a day kind of thing. It's nice. Really, I mean, I've spoken to so many people that have been through it and I've never been, I've never seen it, but I I feel as though it's such a gift to writers. Yeah, it is. And it's got that feeling, I think, Mm. you know, writers are really good at being reverential towards each other, right? And so I... I loved the first time I came up here going through everybody signs the guest book as they mm. check out. And I loved picking out the old guest books and going, oh my God, this person stayed in the room mm. that I stayed in. And and it feels lovely. Like I, you know, as I said, I've been here a few times now and it just feels like home when I get here, you know. Um, no, it's, it's fabulous. It's yeah. Fantastic. So if you have a chance to come. You yeah, yeah. Come. I want to come and check it out, actually. <laughs> you can make me a cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Melanie, thank you so much. The book is called burn and I'm looking forward to many more books. Thank you so much Cheryl, I appreciate it. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.